Thank you very much for that extremely generous introduction. It's a great honour to be here and to speak in this series. I hope that everybody has a sight of the handout, um, because one of the things I'm going to be doing this evening is reading some poems with you. I do believe in letting the poet's words speak for themselves for part of the time, so I do want to use the handout and raise points from it. What I'm interested in doing in, in this, on this occasion is to investigate the presence of the King James Bible in the work of two, coincidentally, Welsh Anglican poets, or perhaps we might say Anglo-Welsh in the case of Herbert. Um, these poets who are respectively first and second generation uh, of those writers influenced by the 1611 translation of the Bible Herbert was 18 in the year of the translation, and Henry Vaughan was born 10 years later, 1621. These writers are best known to us. Um, Herbert, for his collection The Temple in 1633, a collection of devotional writing published posthumously. He died earlier that year. Vaughan is known to us as a devotional poet through two volumes, Silex Sintilans 1 and 2, from 1650, and the expanded second version, 1655. But he went on to live until 1695, so these two poets between them span the entire 17th century. I want to begin by exploring the attitude to the Bible held by poets such as these and generations of readers such as these and to ask the question of how early modern readers approached the Bible, what they did with it, how they handled it. And the starting point for that is the first two poems on the handout, a pair of sonnets written by Herbert appearing in his early manuscript, so probably from the 1620s a pair of sonnets, each entitled The Holy Scriptures. And it seems to me an ideal place to begin to think about how Herbert and later Vaughan responded to the Bible, how they regarded it, how they adored it, I think the rhetoric would suggest. Oh, book, infinite sweetness, let my heart suck every letter and a honey gain, precious for any grief in any part to clear the breast, to mollify all pain. Thou art all health, health thriving, till it make a full eternity. Thou art a mass of strange delights, where we may wish and take. Ladies, look here, this is the thankful glass that mends the looker's eyes. This is the well that washes what it shows. Who can endear thy praise too much, Thou art heaven's lidger here, working against the states of death and hell. Thou art joy's handsel. Heaven lies flat in thee, subject to every mounter's bended knee. If we just pause there for a moment after the first sonnet and look at the range of vocabulary, metaphor, ideas about the Bible contained in this short poem. The Bible is sweet-tasting. It's to be sucked, like um, sucking, as it were, a bee going into a flower and gaining the honey. Precious. It's a medicine. 
It will give health. It's strange but thrilling. And it's interactive. I think it's a fascinating idea that this is not a book which simply, as it were, remains on the page. It's active, it's the glass, the mirror that you look into and instead of just seeing your own self there, you find yourself changed, mended. This is the thankful glass that mends the looker's eyes. That itself is a half-biblical echo. It's echoing the letter of James, where you look in the glass and see your natural face. But this goes one stage further and says, when you look through this glass, then you find that you have been changed, transformed. The Bible is active. It's out here in the world. Heaven's ledger, which is a wonderful um, pun on ledger, as in a book, and ledger, which is a word for an ambassador. So the Bible is heaven's ambassador working against the states of death and hell. So there's a very courtly, uh, um, very political sense of the Bible here. But ultimately, the Bible is accessible. Heaven lies flat in thee, subject to every mounter's bended knee. Interesting that there's a sense here that the Bible is accessible through prayer. Reading is never just reading with the Bible. It's always meditation, devotion. This echoes Isaiah, where prayer mounts up with wings. So the bended knee of the person praying um, is then... Um, the way in which strangely, a very strange image, um, the bended knee leads to mounting up, prayer mounting with wings. So already, talking about the scriptures, Herbert can't help but echo them. They're present here, they're slotted in, lurking in the language. But it's a very dynamic sense of the Bible, interactive, as I've said, um, out there doing things, intervening politically, medically, and in all these prayerful ways. The second sonnet takes us more closely into the method of reading. Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configurations of their glory, seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. This verse marks that, and both do make a motion unto a third, that ten leaves off doth lie. Then, as dispersed herbs do watch a potion, these three make up some Christian's destiny. Such are thy secrets, which my life makes good, and comments on thee. For in everything thy words do find me out, and parallels bring, and in another make me understood." Stars are poor books, and oftentimes do miss. This book of stars lights to eternal bliss. I'm sorry about the last couplet tantalisingly being on the next sheet. Um, it was my way of hiding my title until you turned over. Um, no, it actually, there wasn't quite enough room on the page. But um, I think this is a wonderful sonnet because it demonstrates the kind of reading which underlies what Vaughan and Herbert are doing in their poetry. No verse of the Bible is read in isolation. There is always a configuration, a connection, an interlinking. 
These are not isolated stars, but constellations. It's still a very active sense of reading. The reader makes connections, linking verses to those that lie ten leaves off, and making up together some sense of a life story, of a destiny. There's a mutual commentary here. The Bible is a commentary, a guide for human life. But the human life also comments on the Bible. My life makes good and comments on thee. The words find out the reader. The reader discovers the words and brings parallels. Very, very important sense of reading as not at all passive as we might imagine it, not listening and absorbing like a sponge, but the reader in the text, in another, make me understood. Understood is a very important word in Herbert. Prayer is something understood. And reading the Bible is a process of understanding and being understood. That mutual sense of interpretation. Herbert says in another of his poems, the stories that you read in the Bible pen and set us down. So there isn't a sense of the separateness of the Bible, but of reading the stories there and finding that we are written in them. So this book of stars, which is where I took my title from, this book of stars, the Bible, lights to eternal bliss. It's enlightenment, but also never a sense of just one star on its own, and not fallible like stars, which sometimes miss, but an an inestimable richness of constellations and stars casting light on our lives. So these sonnets, in their richness, have given us a great deal already, but I would say they've introduced two crucial aspects about the reading of the Bible in this early generation after the 1611 translation. Reading the Bible is active and mutual. It's active reading which has an effect and which finds itself fulfilled in the text The text needs the reader as well as the reader needing the text. And secondly, the other crucial aspect is that nothing stands alone but is always interconnected, a constellation and not an isolated twinkling star. This is a very familiar tradition, of course, in the Protestant habit of reading. This making connections finding the stories of the Old Testament fulfilled in the new, finding the new fulfilled in one's own experience. Herbert, in his prose work, advising a country parson how best to use the Bible, refers to a diligent collation of scripture with scripture. Or, elsewhere, he says, a judicious comparing of place with place. So there is always an active building of a particular relationship with the Bible by collating, by connecting. And of course, this practice was hugely aided by and built into the liturgy of the Church of England, always, but particularly in this period. 
The King James Bible was appointed to be read in churches. It's the liturgical Bible. It's the Bible from which the epistle and the gospel in the communion service are read, from which the Old and New Testament readings of Matins and even Song are read. And I think it's vital to say that Herbert's sense of the Bible is profoundly liturgical. We would be wrong if we imagined this was about private reading or private reading only. This practice of the Book of Stars working as a constellation, bringing out parallels, is built into the readings that were experienced by congregations day in, day out, week in, week out. And you can see the evidence of Herbert's biblical echoes drawing on this context uh, in the next example on the handout, number two, where Herbert's poem Easter, which obviously celebrating uh, uh, one of the crucial liturgical moments, Herbert's poem Easter moves into a second half where it begins to sing rather simply, almost a hymn. Um, These lines that I've put here are from the beginning of the second half of the poem Easter. I got me flowers to straw thy way. I got me boughs off many a tree. But thou wast up by break of day and brought thy sweets along with thee. The singer here is addressing Christ and is slightly boastfully saying, well, I got up really early on Easter morning to celebrate with you. But he's got it wrong. So often Herbert's speakers get it wrong. And the vocabulary which is biblical is a way of indicating that he's got it wrong. That word straw, not strew, but straw. I got me flowers to straw thy way is a direct echo of an unusual usage of the word straw in the gospel reading, not for Easter, but for Palm Sunday. A very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. This is Herbert knowingly echoing the liturgical reading for the Sunday before Easter. It's a very ironic, deliberate echo, indicating that the speaker who thinks he's on top of things and is there ready on Easter morning is always going to be behind. Jesus is already there. Thou wast up by break of day and brought thy sweets along with thee. Didn't need me. Didn't need me to be cutting down the branches and strawing the way. And that witty, knowing, liturgical use of the Bible would have been recognised by readers. It's a very unusual use of that word, straw. It was already slightly uh, archaic. And Herbert, I think, is quite carefully placing it as a way of using the biblical echo to show that the speaker is, is running to catch up. He's still using the language of Palm Sunday, but Jesus has already risen. It's just one little instance of how I think Herbert's sense of the Bible is profoundly linked with the pattern of the church's year and the readings that are associated with liturgical moments. In fact, his understanding of the Bible is so liturgical that I'm sorry to to say this in a celebration of the King James Version, but every time he echoes the Psalms, he echoes them from the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Coverdale translation and not the King James because he knew them, because he'd sung them, because he'd experienced them. So in in these important ways, the Bible comes through the liturgy. 
Now, Herbert's poetry is full of biblical presences, as I would call them. I've just given a few instances already, but there is no end to the list of ways in which the Bible is embedded in Herbert's lyric poetry. Through vocabulary, as we've already seen, with a word like straw. Through characters, in a poem like Aaron, where Herbert is talking about um, the priesthood, and Aaron is an Old Testament type for him. Metaphors, which he uses recurringly in his temple, in his collection of poetry, which are so enriched by their source in the Bible. Metaphors of dust, grass, corn, grapes. I, I, I could spend the whole evening talking about this kind of vocabulary lurking uh, quite deliberately in the poems. But perhaps less obviously, the syntax of Herbert's poetry is also biblical. The syntax, for instance, of storytelling, of parables, of the style of telling narratives. And, of course, little scenes, moments from the Bible, and characters trotting through the poems carrying a bunch of grapes here or there. There's a, there's a, a sense in which um, the landscape of Herbert's poetry is always biblical. But perhaps more important than all of these technical matters, if you like, the language, the syntax, is the sense that lying behind his poems is the constant reassurance given by the biblical text. He talks in one poem about Christ always being ahead of him, and we've already seen that in his poem about Easter morning. He talks about Christ preventing him going ahead, being there first. And I think that for most of Herbert's poems, the way in which Christ has gone ahead is in the language of the Bible. It's always there, ready for him, ahead of him, to be taken, to be used. The biblical presence in Herbert's poetry is deeply evocative. It's a shorthand, if you like. It's a very um, attractive way for a poet of immediately suggesting something much richer than he could sketch in a whole poem. In some of his titles, for instance, densely packed little words like Jordan, where the poem isn't really about Jordan at all, but the title evokes a sense of the river, of cleansing and baptism, of Jordan being the poet's source of inspiration, not the helicon, but the river Jordan, of change and promise. If you cross over the river Jordan, you're going into the promised land, you're moving ahead. All of those things evoked before the poem has even begun, just by the title, Jordan. But there's a slight anxiety around Herbert's using of the Bible because he was always aware of the danger of getting in the way of the biblical echo, getting in the way of what he wants to say about Christ. He wrote two poems called Jordan, and in the second one, he is worrying about how to write poems in praise of God and not somehow weave yourself into the sense, that terrible spectre of self-centeredness that any poet must worry about, particularly a devotional poet. And I've put on the handout number three, just the last stanza of the poem, Jordan 2. 
As flames do work and wind when they ascend, so did I weave myself into the sense. He's talking about struggling to write a good poem for God. And he's found himself weaving himself into the sense. But while I bustled, I might hear a friend whisper, how wide is all this long pretense? There is in love a sweetness ready penned. Copy out only that and save expense. It's a typical Herbert conclusion. He very often allows his poems to be concluded by someone else speaking, the someone else generally being the friend who's probably Christ, the someone else often being a biblical echo. It's, it's also typical in, in two other ways. He mocks himself while I bustled. He's always aware of the danger of being sort of full of his own busyness as a poet. But he also uses that very mercantile language of saving expense. So there's, a, there's always um, a deep irony in the Herbergian voice, I think. So in this ironic moment of struggling with weaving himself in and out of the sense, because he manages to weave himself out by quoting someone else, as it were, at the end, he gives a kind of recipe for dealing with devotional poetry. Copy. That's all you have to do. Copy. It's all done already. There is in love a sweetness ready penned. Copy out only that. It's the language of writing, of a text, ready penned, copy out. But of course it's talking about love. The example of Christ, love, the figure of love in Herbert is always Christ. But I do think it's also talking about the Bible. The story of Christ's love is penned in the Bible. It's all there, just copy it out, save all your trouble. Is what this friendly voice says to him. The problem is, how do you do it? How do you copy out the Bible and still be a poet? The sonnets that we looked at at the beginning suggest partly that the copying must be living, must be enacting, living a life. Copy it in the sense of imitate Christ. It's also possible to say that you copy by translating. Herbert and later Vaughan both did versions of the Psalms in their own verse. But they didn't do very much translating. Translating perhaps isn't quite enough. Crucially, copying out seems to mean incorporating the Bible into your poems. Copying will always be a little bit different. We, we all know if you try to copy something, you introduce an error, you make it as a bit of a change. So copy will never be exact reproduction. It's a sense of incorporating, copying the inspiration of the Bible and making that the basis, the start and the finish of the poems. But I do think all of Herbert's poetry is about learning to copy. How do you do it? How can you copy the text of love and the text of the Bible. Well, there are a few ways in which he can practically do it. One is his titles, as I've mentioned already, and his endings, as I've hinted, that he often ends with a biblical quotation. The first of his Jordan poems ends, My God, 
my king. Italicized so that we know it's not his words. They were the words of a psalm. Other poems will use phrases from the Bible and in a sense then proceed to make a poem which is like a gloss on the biblical text. His poem, The Call, Come, my way, my truth, my life. We recognise immediately, way, truth, life. And then he goes on to gloss, such a way as gives us breath, such a truth as, almost as though his poem is a kind of marginal note to the Bible. He also copies by making a kind of underlying connection between poems which are biblically based. His poem called Evensong comes seven poems after the poem on Whit Sunday, but its biblical text that it echoes, blessed be the God of love, God so loved the world, is actually the reading from the liturgy for Whit Monday. So seven poems have gone by, but he's still in the season of Whitson, and he's still using the biblical text as it were subterranean underneath the poems and popping up again in this liturgical connection, suggesting moods, times of the year, feast days. And in any one poem, Herbert will use multiple echoes of the Bible. So that's not copying in a straightforward sense, but as it were, infusing his poetry with the Bible. Constellations, I would call them, of echoes in any one poem. A particularly strong example is his poem Sighs and Groans, which quotes or makes a gesture towards 12 different biblical texts in 30 lines. That's fairly dense copying, I would say. But above all, Herbert is an architectural poet. He called his collection, or at least it was seen appropriate by somebody else possibly, to call his collection of poems The Temple. It's a building, you enter the poems. He has a very strong sense of stanza forms and structures and visual um, architectural devices like his poem which is shaped as an altar and so on. And it seems to me that as an architectural poet, Herbert builds the Bible into his poems. That's another way of copying And I've given you an example of this, number four on the handout. A very clear, vivid, visual example of building the Bible into the form and the very body of the poem, so that without it, the poem would fall over. So the the Bible becomes the cornerstone, if you like, the foundation. The title of the poem is itself a biblical reference, so that's um, very... Uh, a significant clue, I think, that uh, this is going to be a particularly biblical poem. The quotation Colossians 3.3 I have put at the foot of the page so that you can see um, what is being evoked. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You'll notice that Herbert's copying underneath the title, is not quite the same. Our life is hid with Christ in God. And then notice that when you get to the first line, it's my, my. We're going to read my life as we go diagonally across the poem. So from your, it's become our, and it's finally my. That's what happens to a biblical quotation when you copy it, when you absorb it. It moves from them to us to me. 
My words and thoughts do both express this notion, that life hath with the sun a double motion. The first is straight and our diurnal friend, the other hid and doth obliquely bend. One life is wrapped in flesh and tends to earth, the other winds towards him whose happy birth taught me to live here so, that still one eye should aim and shoot at that which is on high, quitting with daily labour all my pleasure to gain at harvest an eternal treasure. Just want to pause for a moment on how this copying, how this building in actually works in the poem. It's about a double motion. And we've already had the opposition in the Colossians quotation. Not things above, not things on earth. So there's an opposition there. There's a double motion. But Herbert introduces the idea of the sun. The sun goes from east to west every day in our experience. But its elliptical movement is west to east within the zodiac. So there's a kind of typically Renaissance learned background to this about the double motion of the sun. But the sun typically is not just the sun in the sky, it's the S-O-N, it's Christ, who paradoxically came down in the incarnation to go up again in the resurrection. So there's lots of opposition here. Opposition of the daily life, which is earthly, heads downwards, and the eternal life, which heads upwards, earth and heaven, human and divine. And of course, the fundamental opposition, which is indicated by the oblique, italics, italicized line, we have the opposition between the biblical text and the poetic text. Now, we normally read poems from left to right and top to bottom, but we're encouraged to do a double reading, another double motion. We read the biblical text, which is shot through the text of the poem. Ironically, we read to the bottom, and there we find our heavenly treasure. So we go down, like Christ, in order to go up. It's a very playful poem, and yet I think a very serious and profound poem. This double reading motion is how we read our way into salvation. It's how we copy the Bible, and absorb it, as it were, clothing the biblical text with our own lives, with our own language, with the poet's form. I think it's a superb example, not just of how Herbert takes, copies, and changes the biblical text, but also, again, how he merges them. Because you'll notice that in the oblique quotation... It's not the same as Colossians 3.3 anymore. My life is hid in him that is my treasure. He's already added something else. And I've given you one or two of the possible sources for that idea of the treasure, which is also biblical, and which has been moulded in, brought into play, along with the original Colossians quotation. So there's a double motion here. Again, reading the Bible is active. It's about moving and interacting with the text and, as it were, doing two things at once, living and living through the Bible, reading across and diagonally our hidden salvation in the midst of the poem. 
Let me turn now to Vaughan, who, very interestingly, could be said to have had two Bibles that inspired his writing. One was the King James Version, which he was very fond and from which he always quotes. Every quotation of his is from 1611. His other Bible, if it's not too blasphemous to say so, was Herbert's volume, The Temple. And these two influences get wound together in Vaughan's verse. Because Vaughan, as I said, was one generation removed from the earliest days of the King James Bible, but he was very much inspired, not only by it, but by his reading of Herbert. And I've put a little bit of his author's preface to indicate how he rolls them together, this, if you like, earthly Bible and heavenly Bible together. He that desires to excel, he says, in holy writing, must strive by all means for perfection and true holiness, that a door may be opened to him in heaven, Revelations 4, 1, and then he will be able to write with Herothius and Holy Herbert a true hymn. Now, a true hymn is actually a title of one of Herbert's poems. So we have a quotation from Herbert, at least from a title, and a quotation from the Bible, and these are the two things which Vaughan together is striving to do, striving to fulfill the biblical promise that a door may be opened, and striving to write, which is again, I think, to copy, to copy out the biblical text in his experience, to live it, and with Holy Herbert, as long as, as, along with also the, the fictional hymn writer, Hierotheus, with Holy Herbert to write a true hymn. So the process of interpreting the Bible and becoming holy is a process of copying Herbert as well as the Bible. Very interesting that we're moving already into very different biblical territory, I think, with Vaughan. I don't want to suggest that Vaughan is in any way just himself a mere copy of Herbert. He has a very distinctive voice and a very distinctive relation to the Bible. The book of Revelation is far and away the most popular text, biblical text, in Vaughan's writing. So it's right that we begin with a quotation from that. That suggests also the kind of mood of Vaughan's poetry, which is about revelation, about discovery, and vision, and surprise. (coughs) Herbert typically echoes the Gospels, the Epistles, and the Psalms. Vaughan is much more in the direction of the mystical. I'm not saying that he's necessarily a mystical poet, but he's drawn to the language of Revelation. Interestingly, he also writes a poem, Holy Scriptures, and you'll notice that it's a sonnet, and you'll notice as I read it that it's actually quite similar to Herbert's two sonnets on the Holy Scriptures. Welcome, dear book, souls, joy, and food, The feast of spirits, heaven extracted, lies in thee. Thou art life's charter, the dove's spotless nest where souls are hatched into eternity. In thee, the hidden stone, the manna lies. Thou art the great elixir, rare and choice. The key that opens to all mysteries, the word in characters, God in the voice. Oh, that I had deep cut in my hard heart each line in thee. 
Then would I plead in groans of my Lord's penning, and by sweetest art return upon himself the law and stones. Read here, my faults are thine. This book and I will tell thee so. Sweet Saviour, thou didst die. There are echoes of Herbert, not just the sonnet form, but the reference to food, the reference to life's charter, that, if you like, that diplomatic or political language. But I do think there is already a, a contrast in tone. Herbert had something of a sort of market stall salesman, you know, ladies, look here, drawing people in to, to read the Bible. Look here, you'll find yourself more beautiful. Um, that sort of salesman language, save expense. There's none of that in, in Vaughan. Vaughan is much more interested in the mysterious, the hidden, the secret, the hidden stone, the manner, the great elixir. Very interesting, the elixir is also the title of a poem by Herbert. So even as Vaughan is praising the Bible, he's also indirectly picking up on Herbert's voice too. But for me, the most marvellous phrase in this poem is God in the voice. It's a reminder of where I started that the King James Bible was written to be read. The spokenness, the performative nature of the 1611 translation seems to me to be wonderfully echoed in that idea of the scriptures as God in the voice. This is the absorption of the Bible into the self, into the speaking voice, and into the life, just as Herbert was claiming. But very particularly the reading, the hearing, the performing of the Bible. God in the voice. Now, if Vaughan is different from Herbert in his handling of poetic form and his sense of his relation to and his favourite passages in the Bible, then how do the echoes function in his poetry? Well, not at all in the way that we saw in Colossians 3.3, Herbert's architectural, visual, playful response to the Bible. But, and this is in tune, I think, with Vaughan's attraction to hermetic philosophy, there's a sense in which echoes from the Bible function secretly, secretly, at the very heart of Vaughan's poems. That's where the echoes are centred very often just obliquely mentioned, but there deep down in the source of the poem. The seed growing secretly, not surprisingly, is a text that Vaughan is drawn to, a biblical parable. The kingdom of God is as if a man should cast seed into the ground, is the, the biblical source. And it's really a revealing choice, I think, by Vaughan, because this secret growth deep down is how his biblical presences work, I think, in Silex Sinterlands. There's only the quotation at the beginning, nothing else. The poem opens, If this world's friends might see but once what some poor man may often feel, glory and gold and crowns and thrones, they would soon quit and learn to kneel. Where's the seed? Can't find it at all. Where's the germ of the idea, as it were? It's, it's not there. We have to go right to the middle of the poem, 
to the stanza that I've put next on the handout, which is in fact the seventh stanza of the poem, before we have a sense of the secret growth of the seed. Dear secret greenness, such a typical Vaughan line. Dear secret greenness, nursed below tempests and winds and winter nights, vex not that but one sees thee grow. That one made all these lesser lights. So the theology of it is, of course, that it doesn't matter how secret this growth of faith is, so long as God sees it. But it's also, I'm using this in a way as a metaphor for how Vaughan himself works with the Bible. Even if the reader doesn't see, even if we don't perceive until perhaps the very end of the poem, that's where the echo is, deep down in the heart of the poem. And by the very end, and I quote here the last stanza, then bless thy secret growth, nor catch at noise, but thrive unseen and dumb. Keep clean, bear fruit, earn life and watch till the white-winged reapers come. Again, it's a statement of faith, thrive unseen and dumb, but it's also a comment on how Vaughan does his copying of the Bible. It's unseen and sometimes dumb, not so much on the surface, not so much there in the vocabulary, but deep down in the growth, in the fruition that is about to come to be. And by the end, he's moved on to another biblical passage because the white-winged reapers come from the book of Revelation again. So he doesn't stay with the gospel for long. He doesn't stay with the parable. He is always drawn to the end of things, to the end of the Bible, to Revelation. So if this is the way that the Bible works in Vaughan, rather differently, I think, from Herbert's um, architectural, creative, um, structured use of the Bible, I think it's also important to say that thematic echoes from the Bible define the different moods of these two poets as well. Herbert takes the mood and the experience of the Psalms as central to his writing. Herbert is a kind of David. He was talked of as the sweet singer of the temple by people who admired his verse. So they've identified him as being like David. The psalm like a kind of everyman voice. The key, I think, thematic echo from the Bible in Vaughan is Vaughan's emphasis on innocence and the power of early days, of childhood. And even when Vaughan doesn't directly echo the Bible, it's quite clear that his sense of innocence, his sense of the value of childhood and the purity of the vision of the child, it's quite clear that that is itself biblical, even if he's not directly echoing in his poem. One of his most famous poems, The Retreat, about childhood, happy those early days when I shined in my angel infancy, before I understood this place appointed for my second race, before I taught my tongue to wound my conscience with a sinful sound, but felt through all this fleshly dress bright shoots of everlastingness. Magnificent vision, clearly inspired by the emphasis on childhood in the Gospels. 
suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. Vaughan takes that theme rather than those particular words and enacts them. And the child senses shoots of everlastingness, a marvellous phrase, green life of the beginning of the everlasting, even through the fleshly dress of mortal existence. Now, as I said, often you won't find biblical language in Vaughan's poems. You will find his poems framed by quotations underneath the title or at the end of the poem as a kind of coda. He will often quote part of the Bible. But it seems to me, again, that in his poem, The Constellation, and you can see why I'm interested in The Constellation, because I'm thinking about biblical presences in these poets as constellations, even in his poem, The Constellation, he is not directly talking about biblical stars. He's talking about real stars. And yet, there is a kind of heavenly quality which is hidden in the centre of the poem, growing secretly, as it were, once again. When Herbert talked about constellations, he was talking about the connections of poetic and biblical verses making a story the book of stars metaphor. I'm using it to refer to the complex gathering and clustering of biblical echoes in both poets. But in Vaughan's use, typically, he is actually talking about the stars, real stars. There's much more of the natural world in his verse than in Herbert's. But of course, he can't help but make them symbolic. But the the constellation is at first praise of the stars, the actual stars. Fair ordered lights whose motion without noise resembles those true joys whose spring is on that hill where you do grow and we here taste sometimes below. With what exact obedience do you move now beneath and now above? I've given you quite a lot of this poem because I think it's it's a splendid account uh, but I won't have time to read it all to you. What he does having established that the constellation of stars is an emblem of order, the created order, the silence and light and watchfulness, which I think are absolutely his mood as a poet, silence and light and watchfulness. He contrasts that then with the weakness of human nature, who is slothful. Man still either sleeps or slips his span. In contrast, the stars are obedient, ordered, and light. And at this point, in the middle of the poem, the little the three stanzas that I've clustered in the middle of this page here, he does become overtly biblical, describing the stars, where though the glory differ in each star, yet is there peace still and no war. And I've given you on the previous page the quotations that he is echoing, the stars differing one from another in glory. He talks about the stars being called by name, which is from the Psalms, and honours the stars for staying in their courses, for not being disordered, for not going out of shape, out of pattern. That, too, is a biblical echo. But why is he honouring the stars in this way? 
because I think to use the Bible is, is the most profound respect that he can offer to the stars. He's doing it because he wants to contrast the perfection of the heavenly order seen in the stars with the disorder on earth. And this is where you do feel Vaughan is profoundly different of another generation from Herbert because he's writing in the aftermath of the Civil War. We're here, commissioned by a black self-will, the sons the father kill. The children chase the mother and would heal the wounds they give by crying, zeal. This is devotional poetry which is shot through with, coloured by experience of death, of disorder, of civil unrest, of broken families cut across by battle, by exile. And he concludes longing that we might gain the order of the stars, to be taught obedience by their whole creation and become an humble, holy nation. This is a very different use of the Bible, to spur on, to comment on the contemporary, which very rarely happens in Herbert. But by the end of his collection, his second Silex Sintilans, Vaughan returns overtly to the Bible. He ends before a poem that most poets would feel was a kind of sort of postscript, the, the envoy or l'envoi, which is written at the end of a collection of poems. So before that, the very last of the actual collection of poems is to the Holy Bible. And I just wanted to share this one with you because it speaks again so lovingly of the Bible. It's important that Vaughan begins and ends with the Bible and he speaks of it here in the language of a lover's farewell. Oh, book, life's guide, so that same language as in the sonnets that we read to the Holy Scriptures. How shall we part, and thou so long seized of my heart? Take this last kiss and let me weep true thanks to thee before I sleep. And it's not just that he's saying farewell in the language of, of a lover we actually find that the Bible uses the art of love. The Bible woos the reader. He talks about when he wasn't interested in the Bible and the Bible was cast by. With meek, dumb looks didst woo mine eye. And oft left open wouldst convey a sudden and most searching ray into my soul, with whose quick touch, refining still, I struggled much. But this mild art of love at length Thou overcamest my sinful strength, and having brought me home, didst there show me that pearl I sought elsewhere. So the Bible is active, not just in partnership with the reader here, but intervening with a sudden and most searching ray, touching the soul, even before he can read. The Bible is... The pearl, the pearl of salvation is within it. Interestingly, again, the pearl is a poem by Herbert, whose title is a biblical title. So whenever you think that Vaughan is talking about the Bible, sometimes you have this double sense that he's talking about Herbert and the Bible all in one go. Finally, living thou wert my soul sure ease, and dying makes me go in peace. The Bible is there from the beginning to end and beyond. 
Thy next effects no tongue can tell. Farewell, O book of God, farewell. So this book of stars that we started with, Herbert's phrase that lights to eternal bliss, covers life, death and eternity. There's no limit to the power of this text. And the whole collection here in Vaughan's writing ends with a biblical quotation. So this is the simplest kind of copying. You end your poem, you end your collection of verse and you simply copy out a verse. Glory be to God in the highest. Interestingly, Herbert too ended with that same biblical quotation at the end of the temple. So again, is Vaughan going directly to the Bible or to the Bible through Herbert? The important thing is they both begin and end with the Bible, framing their texts. On the title page of the temple, there is a quotation from the Psalms. In his temple, every man speaks of his honour. And Vaughan begins his collection of poems with his own mixture of psalm verses that he puts together in his own concoction, picking out one verse from here, there, as in the Herbert description of one verse marks another, and Vaughan changes the translation and makes it his own. So the Temple and Silex Sinterlands, both in these rich ways, drawing on the Bible, but using it as a kind of protective framework, the edge, the beginning and the end, the the, the meta, if you like, the meta text around their own work, their own intensely biblical lyrics, but purely biblical in the framework. So let me sum up then something of what I would call the riches that we have sampled here in these two poets' work. Fundamentally, a sense of the King James Bible as experienced orally. Via the liturgy and the choice and interconnectedness of liturgical readings from the Bible, but also via the making that spoken voice the poet's own, God in the voice, the Bible giving a way of speaking and entering into the texts. The Bible is crucially seen by both poets as interactive whether it's Vaughan's Bible, which is almost like a lover leaping out and, uh, and doing what a Petrarchan lover would do, and um, touching the soul with a searching ray, which is generally what is said of women's eyes in Petrarchan love poetry. The Bible is interactive in Herbert's reading of it because in living his life, he finds himself glossing the Bible, just as the Bible itself glosses his life. The Bible rings with echoes and connections. It's a book of stars. And don't forget, that also implies the music of the spheres, the harmony of the biblical text. So a book of stars, which is both light and sound. The Bible's not one star. No verse is one star, but always hinting at a constellation. And the Bible for these poets requires a partnership of response, copying out, which is living as well as writing. The Bible is a source of words, phrases, types, characters, ideas, patterns, 
ways of ending, but always also a source of comfort to them both. I would want to make a distinction here between Vaughan and Herbert on the one hand and a writer like Bunyan on the other, where the Bible, the verse, is a threat, is a danger, is, is, is terror to him. Hits him over the head, literally, um, in grace abounding. There's none of that in Herbert and Vaughan. There is a storehouse of riches, but always the promise of comfort. I've tried to suggest that looking at the way in which these poets use the Bible can be a kind of prism through which their own individual colours will shine. Herbert with his wit, his very careful design of double motion, his links across between and underneath poems in a very carefully sequenced collection of verse. Vaughan, on the other hand, more impulsive, drawn to revelation, the vision and the secret working of biblical presences within his poems, like the seed growing secretly. And Vaughan reads two books, the book of nature as well as the book of scripture, both God's books. I think there's no doubt that the Bible was all in all to these writers. Sound, meaning, rhetoric, hope. And my last brief quotation comes from Herbert's poem, The Flower. It's difficult to take it out of context, but I I think it will stand on its own. These three lines, such profound lines, summing up the all-encompassing nature of the Bible. We say amiss this or that is, thy word is all, if we could spell. I have to confess, I'm afraid there's a typing error in this quotation, because in Herbert the word is lowercase w. I think it's I that inserted the uppercase w, perhaps because I was thinking all the time that, of course, the word of the Bible is also the word which is Christ, the Logos. So apologies for my intruding in Herbert's text there. It does remind us that we're always talking about the word which is love as well as the word which is text. So the Bible, thy word, is everything. Thy word is all. So totally encompassing. But there are two halves to this statement. Thy word is all if, if we could spell That's the key. It's a bit like if we could copy. How do we copy it out? How do we do it? Sounds so easy. If we could spell. What is spelling? Well, it's a very complex word. It's multivalent. First of all, it's contemplating and considering intently. That's one of the less well-known meanings in the OED spell, to contemplate, to consider intently. Thy word is all, if we could really just meditate on it so intently. But of course, spelling is also that skill that we know that's required for reading, for reading the Bible, for repeating, spelling over, for speaking God in the voice again. It's also, spelling, basic to learning to write, to copy. You can't copy out if you can't spell. And therefore, it's about using the word in poetry. 
spelling and writing. But like copying out, spelling is more than a concept concerning language because to spell is also to decipher, to understand, to enact. The task of the poet is to spell the word, to understand and reformulate the Bible in their own verse. So we've come full circle. We started with the idea of the Bible as the book of stars, constellations of words and doctrines, promises that light to eternal bliss. But in his early version of that Holy Scriptures sonnet, Herbert had a slightly different last line. Not this book of stars lights to eternal bliss, but this book of stars can spell eternal bliss. I think it's absolutely fascinating that it's lurking there in the early version of the line, can spell eternal bliss. That's what the Bible does. So another meaning again to the word spell. It can add up to, it can speak of, it can promise eternal bliss. It can foretell. The shared vocabulary brings together readers of the Bible who spell and retell and reformulate, spelling out the Bible. But it also brings in the mutual relationship of the Bible with the believer or the poet. Because the Bible spells too. It spells, promises, eternal bliss. The devotional poet copies it, respells it, interprets it. If, if only we could spell. But ultimately, I think, the poets trust that what their readers can spell, because after all, we have to spell in order to deal with these poems, what we read, what we spell in their poems is indeed some constellations of the Book of Stars itself. Thank you.